Hi, I'm Keto. Hi, I'm Mizuki. Hi, I'm Stephanie, and welcome to a special episode of Meshi. We wanted to take some time to discuss some recent news happening in the film and TV industry. There's just been a lot of worker-related news and like incidents occurring literally in the past day or so, but also just overall this year and some worker news escalating in the past couple months. So yeah, we just wanted to like chat about what's been going on and talk a little bit about our personal feelings about it. Just for background, I've worked as a PA and a coordinator on film and TV in Japan for the past three years or so. I haven't been working much since the pandemic, but I've been mostly working on US, UK co-productions. So movies and TV that shoot in Japan with uh, mostly like half US or like half foreign, half Japanese crew. So I work on the local end. Yeah, Miss, what about you? Um, I've mostly worked in the post-production sector, first for Japanese advertisements, and now I do documentaries. And Stephanie is a fan of movies. <laughs> that's generous. Stephanie has watched a few movies. <laughs> yeah, that's more like it. No, I think we just like all have an interest in the culture. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as consumers of media, I think it's also important to look at the labor that goes into the productions. I think that this may go for a lot of people who fall into film and TV work, but you know, a lot of people get into it because they really like movies and TV. And I think what you realize, I mean, working in the industry is very different from experiencing it as a consumer. And there's always like the, oh, you don't want to know how the sausage is made type things about like, food and like cars and a lot of consumer products but Hollywood movies and TV are consumer products in a way that is way more similar to the stuff you find in your grocery store that a layperson would probably envision when they think of Hollywood or film in general. To provide some context in kind of what's happening in Hollywood right now there is a labor union called the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, also referred to as IATSE. And they're a labor union that represents all the like crafts people and like artisans and technicians that work in the entertainment industry. IATSE consists of below the line workers in Hollywood. That being said, it's uh, the US and Canada, so I'm being very general when I say Hollywood, but there are like local unions all around both countries for their respective filming areas. In Hollywood, they call it the line, which is the invisible barrier that separates above the line and below the line staffers. So above the line is like producers and actors, and below the line is everyone who does what you see on screen besides people. So what's in the background? Like, what are people wearing? What does their makeup look like? Is it raining outside? Like, these are all parts of a film that have to be crafted by someone. And they're all considered below the line staff. Yeah, so basically all the people who are like actually responsible for creating movies and TV. So it's quite a large uh, labor union. I think it's something like 150,000. But basically they were negotiating contracts with AMTPT, which is the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, um, which represents all the big studios. So Disney, Paramount, Universal, etc. And the most recent contract expired at the end of July. And so they were trying to renegotiate for the next contract period. 
and the union and AMTPT couldn't come to agreements. And so what ended up happening was all the locals voted. What they were voting for was like a strike authorization. So that basically gave the union the power to go on strike should the negotiations fall apart. So IATSE members voted and they basically gave the union like the go ahead to authorize a strike should it reach that point. After the strike authorization vote, IATSE announced that if negotiations were like stalled and they hadn't reached an agreement by Monday, October 18th, then a strike would occur. And that basically gave AMPTP like four more days of negotiations to put together a contract so that all production didn't seize on Monday, which would have caused chaos more or less. So my understanding is that there's like a tentative agreement between AMPTP and the union, but that contract then has to be approved by the union members themselves before it's official and ratified. There's like a system for approval. It's not just like each person has one vote. I think it's more similar to like an electoral college of sorts. But should that agreement not be ratified by the like local unions, then it's still possible that they would go on strike since they still have that like strike authorization. Basically, each labor union votes as like a collective. So if you have 300 locals, for example, and 151 vote yes, and 149 vote no, that's just one. Yeah, that really sucks. Yeah, so it's not like every individual member's vote counts. Cool. Democracy in action. But basically, it kind of just represented a tipping point, I would say, like in the industry where the conditions that people were experiencing were so bad that they reached their limit, basically. They haven't officially come to an agreement yet, so I'm assuming that at any point a strike could occur. But my understanding is that strikes in the entertainment industry are very rare The biggest strike in recent history was the Writers Guild strike that happened back in 2007 and 2008. That was like a 12-week long strike. Yeah, it went from November to February. Um, And during that period, writers obviously weren't writing for television or movies. And so the reason why it's something that I've always known about is like back in 2007, 2008, like all the TV shows had shortened seasons as a result. Gossip Girl's first season only had like 12 episodes in it. (laughs) (laughs) How labor affected Stephanie's enjoyment of Gossip Girl. So long story short, these strikes don't happen often. And so this was a pretty significant moment in IATSE's history. And I think COVID has kind of served as an accelerant for a lot of discussions or sentiment that was already existing. Because of COVID, a lot of productions were put on hold. And so what ended up happening was when restrictions started loosening and people started going back to work, all of a sudden there was like a huge demand for content and production to ramp up as quickly as possible. So working in film has already been a really high pressure industry, but I think it just got way worse and people really felt this 
extra pressure from studios to work faster and longer hours, which is kind of why we got to this breaking point where people have just been really fed up about the way they've been treated for so long. Yeah, not to mention kind of all the behind the scenes work that had to go into trying to put into place like COVID protocols and like measures to protect all the individuals on set from getting COVID and and whatnot since... There was a big demand to ramp production back up in the midst of a global pandemic. I think it'd be good to go over some of the IATSE demands because it'll become quite apparent <laughs> to someone outside the industry that like what is being asked for is the bare minimum. <laughs> so at a high level, IATSE was asking for the AMPTP to address like four major issues, those issues being excessively unsafe and harmful working hours, unlivable wages for the lowest paid crafts, consistent failure to provide reasonable rest during meal breaks between workdays and on weekends, and workers on certain quote-unquote new media streaming projects get paid less even on productions with budgets that rival or exceed those of traditionally released blockbusters. One of the things that IATSE is fighting for under excessively unsafe and harmful working hours is a renegotiation of turnaround, which is defined as the amount of time that you have between your wrap time, which is when your day officially ends, and your call time, which is when your day officially starts for work. So under this new agreement, Biazzi is asking for mandatory 10-hour turnarounds, which I would argue is not that great, especially because many people have to drive to and from work. And if you're on a movie set, for example, like if you're in a studio and that's close to your house, then it's not too bad. But say you're shooting on location and you're up in the mountains somewhere and your production doesn't provide you with a hotel, then you might have to drive an hour just to get to work. And that's not factored into your call or wrap time. If you have a 10-hour turnaround and it takes you an hour to drive, then you only have eight hours between the moment you get home and the time you have to uh, leave the house the next morning, which I don't think is nearly enough if you actually want to get some proper rest and given that you've been working the whole day. Under like the current agreement, their turnaround time is only like eight or nine hours. And then this new demand is asking for 10 hours, which is only like an hour or two increase, which is not that much. In film school, like you learn that the standard is like 12 hour turnaround time. But I guess that's not the standard for the industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was a student, we did 12 hour turnarounds. Which is still a lot of working time, right? 12 hours is still a lot of work. Yeah, you're supposed to do like 12 on, 12 off. But I personally am not a huge fan of doing things by turnaround. I would prefer to do it by uh, maximum working hours per week or by day. <laughs> the problem with turnaround time instead of maximum hours is because if you don't have a cap on hours worked, you can just keep going. So you can work a 20-hour day and then institute a 10-hour break. But obviously, if you work a 20-hour day compared to a 10-hour day, you're going to need way more rest. But the 10 hours of rest is still consistent, which is not great. Yeah, that makes sense. We can probably link to this, but there is an Instagram page that was posting stories from people in the industry talking about like personal experiences they've had with working conditions. One common theme is people who have coworkers or who themselves have fallen asleep at the wheel because they were working like such long hours and wrapping at super late times and having to go back in, you know, within a few hours the next day and putting themselves in dangerous situations because of such short turnaround times. 
One time I was in a truck with someone who hadn't been sleeping enough. And in Japan, they have caffeinated gum. So he kept trying to chew it by like the handful and would start singing to himself to stay awake. And he told me that on his last shoot, he got into two car accidents. We kept swerving. My God. It's horrifying. So that's one demand, right? The turnaround time. There's also a proposed increase in meal penalties. So in theory, if you are working for six hours, you're supposed to have time to eat lunch and dinner. But some productions will force you to just keep working through your meal break and then compensate you in exchange. So what this does is they'll raise the dollar amount that you'll get paid. I think it's based on your existing salary rate for not eating lunch that day or dinner that day. So the meal penalty is like if we're going with our 12-hour work day and you start at 6 a.m., let's say you work for six hours until 12 p.m. and then you get a meal, you get a lunch break, and then you work the second half of the day. But the meal penalty is if you work more than six hours in the first half of the day, then the production gets a financial penalty. Yeah, so they have to pay you extra, but they don't have to give you lunch. Right. (laughs) So that's already the system that's in place right now, but it's like this new demand is just increasing the penalty. Yeah, they're just making it more expensive for you to skip lunch. The rate stuff really just doesn't satisfy me because I've been on sets where the budget has been high enough that producers don't care about penalties for overwork or meals so they're perfectly content to just let people skip lunch or stay longer and just keep paying people this exchange of money for time and like livelihood feels really cursed to me (laughs) because the way this works is that basically the incentives on the production end are for production companies to want to not keep you longer and want to not let you skip lunch so that they can save money on their movies But, like, I don't think that should be the baseline for the way labor negotiations work. Like, it should be, is everyone safe first? And then think about people getting paid, right? Because if you're, like, getting injured or you die on set, like, it doesn't matter how much money you make. The end game should be safety. Like, obviously people should get paid more, but I don't think the push and shove should come through whether productions are willing to let people not eat or take bathroom breaks. I feel like that was the criticism about the system that was already in place is that these penalties don't mean anything if the production just has enough money to pay them off, which they usually do. And this is like similar to any law or rule in society that has a financial penalty is that if you can pay these off, it's not a penalty for you. So it doesn't really work to guarantee like safe working conditions. On the topic of production budgets, this is something that affects not just below-the-line individuals, but also top-of-the-line. Most recently, Scarlett Johansson was suing Disney for breach of contract. Her contract promised certain financial bonuses based on the performance of Black Widow at the box office. But what ended up happening was, because of COVID, Black Widow was released both on Disney Plus and in theaters. Um, And so her argument was that because Black Widow wasn't exclusively in theaters, she was losing out on those bonuses because the movie didn't perform or the movie wasn't allowed to perform as well as it could have. And like the fact that it was released on demand, you know, just meant that there were people who weren't going to the theater to see it. And Disney's argument was that they don't have money. They're like, oh, there's a pandemic. 
obviously we had no choice. Why would we like self-sabotage? And like, if we thought it would be more successful box office only, like we would have done that. It makes no sense for Disney to like lose out on profit so that we don't have to pay you Scarlett Johansson. I mean, like the point is that these large production companies have lots of money and resources to pay their top billed actors like millions of dollars per movie and like pay their producers millions of dollars. So it, it just feels a little like sad that these workers have to fight for just the scraps. I mean, I have tried to negotiate for higher pay many times in all my jobs and I'm always being told like oh there's no budget for you but I'm like I've seen everyone's pay stubs like (laughs) I know how much the actors are getting paid on this (laughs) um so please stop telling me that there's no money in the budget like if you are the producer and there's no money maybe you should have allocated your resources more effectively before you started doing this (laughs) I'm sure people know this but like some movies have absolutely ridiculous budgets, like a hundred million dollars. You're telling me that you have a hundred million dollars and you can't pay people minimum wage or like a little above that. The bar is like subterranean. And so from the outside perspective, it's like kind of horrifying because what people are asking for is what I would consider poor working conditions to begin with. And so the fact that people are fighting for like a 10 hour turnaround time is just mind boggling. Cause I feel like by default, it should be longer than that. I found like a lot of conversations about film and television, like from a mass media perspective to be really frustrating recently, especially since I, you know, started working in film and coming from a background of someone who studied art and really likes movies in general. So many of like the mainstream conversations that we have about movies tend to not come from a making perspective, which is understandable because it's not like criticism is able to be like, oh, this thing happened in this movie because the weather was like this that day. Like you have no way of knowing that. I don't know if that's like something that's resolvable, but like when you take away that bit of the conversation about how art is made, I think it really does a disservice to people because I don't think any of it is worth people's health and safety. Like I would rather see extremely ugly, cheaply made movies by people who were paid a lot of money and went home on time. As much as I love film, like I don't need to see any more movies that look great, but resulted in people losing sleep. Yeah, this is true in any industry, but no one should be dying at work, you know? Or like, none of it is worth it. Especially not movies. Yeah, you can't eat a movie. I guess with film and television, it might be less apparent, but in other industries, treating your employees well and paying them well has like positive side effects, shockingly enough. If you pay people, then they are incentivized to come to work on time and like do a good job. And so it just seems so disingenuous to be like, oh, we don't have money to pay people and like make it seem like productions would go bankrupt and like not be able to create equally as good products, if not better, under like better working conditions. From what I've read online, people who actually have been aggressive about, you know, whistleblowing or calling things out when 
you know, dangerous things on set have occurred are considered to be like unreasonable and not suited for working. And because it is a freelance industry, like it is all dependent on the kind of relationships you form with other people. So if you get blacklisted and you develop a reputation as someone who creates problems for production, then there is a high chance that you won't get hired again. So it does create this culture of fear where people don't really want to talk about things that have gone on. Like I've had this happen to me multiple times where I want to get paid more money. So like I will talk to producers and like ask about contracts and like try to renegotiate things. And I have had like people tell me, you know, I wouldn't recommend you do this because otherwise I'm not going to want to work with you again. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like That's really shitty. Yeah. But also... I guess in the film industry, what you can get from that is like, the good thing about unions is that you don't have to do that alone, right? If you're in a union, you don't have to negotiate things like your pay alone, because usually if you do that, you don't get very far. Whereas if you do it through a union, it's a collective effort. It's a collective negotiation. And so you're not just fighting for things alone. You're fighting it as part of a group. And I think that's really important for, especially for Japan, because there's like no unions here, especially for film. And so a lot of people have a hard time negotiating their pay. Yeah. And like for me, it really sucks to see because I work on set with half a crew who is under IATSE or the DGA and the other half is local. And so they don't have unions, which I think is ridiculous. And like everyone who is in the union has been very, very nice to me. And they're always shocked to find out that we're not unionized because they're like, oh, you know, shouldn't you be under the same working conditions that we are? But, you know, I don't even work in film that much anymore. But uh, seeing IATSE's conditions change would make a big difference for people who work here. Because if you are, for instance, working on a new samurai movie for <laughs> whatever that they decide to shoot in Japan, the working hours that IATSE works will dictate the working hours of local staff. From my experience, locals tend to work longer than foreign staff. So like if the IATSE working day is 10 hours and I'm a PA and I'm local, then you know I might end up working 12, 13, sometimes 14 plus hours, which sucks. But at least your shooting day is still limited by IATSE regulations. So that does serve as an extra buffer for people like me. And I don't work Japanese movies and TV because there is no buffer, because we don't have a union. Working conditions in Japan are like notoriously 10 times worse as they are now. I've heard of someone who worked three days straight, like they worked a 72 hour day, which... What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> um, How's that allowed? I, I don't know. And I don't even know how like you could physically do that. That kind of thing doesn't happen in the States, which is still a very low bar. But the whole point in having these film unions is so you have some sort of collective backup. Another thing that IATSE is asking for is the change in the way new media pays out to employee pensions. New media is like mostly streaming, so the big ones like Amazon, Hulu, Netflix. And in the previously existing model, every time a show would be sold into the secondary market, so it would be put on reruns or distributed as DVDs, like a chunk of that money would go into your pension plan as a staff on that show. But now because Netflix doesn't have DVDs of Stranger Things, for example. They haven't come up with some sort of alternative to put that money into pensions. So even if you're working for one of these giant companies, streaming is so much bigger than even traditional 
uh, big media companies like Warner Brothers, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, they're still not required to chip in as much money as these traditional media companies are. So basically, they're just trying to level the playing field so that these bigger companies are expected to also pay into people's pensions. I think a similar thing happened for the writers' strike in 2007-2008 with this upcoming new media. At the time, it was for content on the internet and websites where writers who were writing for film and TV were not getting paid for content that they were writing for YouTube, internet in general. And so back then, the writers were negotiating for payment for content for the internet that was coming up at the time. And I feel like this is a similar sort of thing happening right now, where new media is how a lot of people consume content now, but it's not included in a lot of these contracts or negotiations and I think that's what they're trying to change. So for the past couple of weeks this whole labor negotiation stuff with IATSE has been going on in the midst of like a lot of other different labor and union struggles and like strikes in like other industries but this has all come to a climax in the past day with this situation unfolding at the set of the movie Rust. So what happened was Alec Baldwin, who is the star of the movie, accidentally fired a prop gun and shot and killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins as well as injured the director. I think we all thought it was a horrific accident at first, but a lot of news is coming out today and in recent hours that it looks like there was a bit more going on on set with regard to set safety issues and union members and crew members feeling unsafe. And so I think we should talk a little bit about this particular set issue. Can I just say first, I don't think this is Alec Baldwin's fault. I think the rule of thumb is to treat actors like babies, like as people who know nothing about what they're doing in terms of tech and like leave everything to professionals and, you know, assume the worst at every possible opportunity. And like, that's the responsibility of production, not the responsibility of actors. So like Alec Baldwin was involved in this, but like conversations about this aren't really about his role. He just was in a bad place at a bad time is what I understand. I think the first initial like confusion about this is that like, this is supposed to be a prop gun, right? How can a prop gun shoot and kill someone? Yeah, so a a prop gun in this case was a gun that was loaded with blanks instead of bullets. So it was like the casing with gunpowder to make it look and sound like a gun, but there's no like actual bullet. But that doesn't mean they're not still extremely dangerous and can be fatal. There was an AD assistant. The assistant director is like the first point on call for safety on set. So contrary to popular belief, they are not the assistant to the director. They are their own like logistical job. So the first AD gave Alec Baldwin a prop firearm and said it was a cold gun, which means it didn't have any rounds inside. But then it actually turned out that there was a round in the gun. So yeah, it looks like this isn't some accident that occurred because of Alec Baldwin's mistake. It's actually like a lot of issues that have to do with production and those who are like overseeing the set. I think the most like shocking part of the LA Times article was 
them reporting that there had been accidental misfirings prior to this incident. And so that just goes to show that this was like a known issue. And so that raises the question on like whether it could have been prevented had the working conditions been better or had crew safety been taken more seriously by production. There were already lots of issues about working conditions on set before any gun was even introduced. People were saying that they were camera operators who walked off of set earlier, um, and the cinematographer who passed away was also expressing concerns about safety conditions. And staff had requested a hotel to stay in, but the production wouldn't provide it for them, so they were forced to drive a really long distance to work every day. So, you know, being overworked and tired, like, already leads to people making mistakes even before you get to the issue of, like, not having safety protocols. And in this case, I think some union staff walked off and then production decided to replace them with non-union staff, including the person who was in charge of handling the prop guns. The people that they hired on this rust shoot who were non-union after the union staff left is kind of indicative of this, like, problem that I feel is prevalent in this like division between union and non-union staff as someone who isn't in a film union like i'm not covered by any of the protections that iatsi would be under even if i were working on an iatsi shoot for the most part pas which are production assistants aren't unionized which i think is important to talk about as well because these iatsi negotiations won't affect production assistants who are notoriously the worst paid and the longest working on staff because Production assistants typically come in before everyone else starts working and then they clean up after everyone else is done. So if you're, for example, working a 14-hour a day, your PAs will probably be working a 16-hour a day. And I I do really support IATSE and I support unions, but they are ultimately like in service of their members. Entering into one of these unions is really, really difficult. But I don't want the end game to be that, oh, if you're in a union and the union has enough protections out for you, then union staff will be safe and non-union staff won't be covered. I think the ideal is that there are strong and enforceable labor laws that prevent these things having to be dealt with through the union negotiation process to begin with. Because I don't think it's fair that people who aren't in these labor unions have to suffer because they aren't able to get into them or like they start out as a PA or something and they're the ones who are facing the hardest working conditions and get paid the least and yet don't have the protection that IATSE staff do. IATSE is important in that it establishes professional standards, especially if you are working on very technical jobs that require you to have a certain number of hours of experience or like qualifications, which it is useful for. But beyond that, from an organizing standpoint for standards across the board, I would prefer to have laws do that work. I've worked with people from the UK and like, I think they do have unions over there as well, but they aren't nearly as prominent as American Canadian ones are because there is no need for them. Like their labor laws are already strong enough that they don't even have to bother. Like they are just guaranteed over time and working hour conditions by the government. Yeah, I heard the same thing from a labor professor who was doing a lecture on the history of labor unions. And he said that, you know, labor unions are great, but the better thing is that these labor unions don't exist because there are the labor laws that exist or like companies do better to provide like safe working conditions for workers. But the reason why these 
unions exist in the first place is because it, that's not done. I saw on Twitter that people were like, oh, you know, VFXing a gunshot would be so cheap. Like, you can just do that instead of firing a prop gun. Like, why would you not just do that to begin with? Which, on one hand, I do understand because we do obviously have the technology to VFX gunshots, but I don't think it's great to say that, oh, it's cheaper, so we should do it this way, when you're just passing on that labor to people who are working in post-production, particularly people who are working in VFX, who also aren't unionized. I think that's just a little disrespectful to the kind of work they do that is very labor-intensive. And the idea of VFX being cheap is kind of indicative of this collective idea we have that post-production is and should be inexpensive because it becomes a lot easier for production companies to outsource that labor to post-production to save money uh, because those people who work on post-production are also very overworked and suffer from the exact same problems that, you know, IATSE staffers do. But that's just not something that is, I don't know, either doesn't have like enough public exposure or like attention. But the underlying issue is that this was something that happened because of people who were overworked or not experienced enough or like had to hire inexperienced staff because people who were overworked didn't want to work their job anymore. And honestly, given my understanding of how Hollywood works, I am not optimistic that this is the lesson that people will take from this. But I really hope they do because it is like a conflation of so much of the conversation that's been happening around IATSE and like this push for people to have more sustainable and like healthy relationships to their work so there aren't accidents or like there aren't incidents that occur because of human error. Yeah, I mean, even if it weren't the prop gun, that's not to say that like the labor conditions and kind of just the culture on set wouldn't have caused like another accident. But yeah, so this is ultimately a labor issue and not a mishandling of a prop gun issue. I mean, it's both, but to a lesser extent. You know, the mishandling of a prop gun thing should have been solved with the death of Bruce Lee's son, because I guess they they did make changes to rules about how prop guns are handled after that accident. But, you know, that doesn't mean anything if these productions aren't following these rules and accidents like this one on Rust can happen. With this case, it's like the AD was told that it wasn't a live gun, but it was. And that's just like a miscommunication issue. And I can imagine like if you're working this long and everyone is super tired and production is trying to cut costs and trying to cut down the time, I can imagine how that can get lost in communication. So I feel like like better working conditions are really, really necessary. And like, you know, the first thing you learn in film school, or I learned anyway, that is it's safety for right? But I guess production doesn't guarantee that in the real world when they're trying to like cut costs or whatever, which is really horrifying because no one should be dying on set or at their workplace. Yeah, I mean, the most scary thing to me is when productions have someone die on set and then they just keep shooting. If I were a producer and someone died on my set, like, I don't think I could just live that down and, like, continue to make the movie. This whole situation is, like, very depressing. And I just hope that it encourages people to more actively think about human life and, like, the consequences involved in making TV and movies that everyone loves so much like it it does come at a cost and it, it it is a very easy thing to rectify. I mean, you can still enjoy your Marvel movies 
and have people be treated well. I guess the natural question when you hear about labor struggles within Hollywood and on sets when you're not within the industry is what can I do as a consumer to stand in solidarity with these workers? In other instances, it might be a lot more straightforward where it's like, don't cross the picket line, don't purchase these goods, like boycott this company's product. But with something like film and television, it's like, do I stop watching movies forever? Like, what's the course of action here? As it relates to like strikes generally, I know IATSE didn't go on strike, but you know, when individuals do go on strike, they're not working. So they're obviously not getting paid. And so oftentimes, they have to rely on like their savings to you know, make it through however long they're not working or through or they're supported through like strike funds, which are like pools of money that unions have specifically in case of a strike. And I know in some cases, you're able to as an individual donate to strike funds. I heard about one of the locals here having a strike fund on GoFundMe. But as of right now, I haven't heard a lot about strike funds only because the strike hasn't occurred and may not occur. But that's one way. I think when it comes to, you know, boycotting specific studios or streaming services, from what I've seen online, it's more of a personal choice in that, you know, unless the union is like specifically asking people to like not do a certain thing or to take a certain action. Not that it's negligible, but like it isn't as impactful as it might seem. You know, if a union is specifically asking, you know, please don't buy this product, then buying that product makes you a scab. But like in some cases, it's like you're better off showing solidarity in other ways than like participating in a boycott that no one has asked for. I was thinking about this with regard to Me Too, because when people said that they were going to boycott a movie that had an abusive person or like a predator in it, which on the surface level I agree with, but sexual abuse is not the only form of abuse. Like when you watch a movie, there are tons of people who are suffering different kinds of abuse, like from workplace labor related conditions. Like, you know, in Japan we have pawahara, which is like power harassment. There's physical abuse on sets. Like these forms of abuse or like these pressures are all something that are being felt by workers who are on sets who do not necessarily have the same public profile as like famous actresses who have been harassed by famous actors, for example. Which isn't to like uh, minimize terrible things that have happened to prominent people. As someone who has worked on film sets, like I personally find it very hard to say, oh, terrible people worked on this shoot and like terrible people haven't worked on this shoot because no matter what movie or TV show you've watched, there are always people who are like victims of this terrible system that currently exists in Hollywood. So personally, I don't feel that saying I'm not going to watch Netflix this week or I'm not going to watch Hulu this week is particularly helpful because the way power is distributed does not make for for that to have that kind of an impact on the way producers or like higher ups will think of their content being shown to audiences in general. I guess in terms of major boycott that's happened in the past week or so has been related to boycotting Netflix. Netflix fired a trans employee who publicly criticized Netflix's decision to host a Dave Chappelle special while simultaneously claiming to be like an inclusive platform. Someone was fired, I think, for tweeting about it. So in response, Netflix employees walked out. There were supporters at the headquarters to show solidarity. And then people online were also sharing on social media news of the walkout and also expressing solidarity by hashtag boycotting Netflix. I think the lesson we can learn from 
all of the things that have happened over the past couple weeks is that media corporations aren't your friends. I think like fandom culture has like really exploded to the point where like people really have an affinity toward certain companies and like characters and properties, which is fine. Like you can, I mean, I'm a big Mission Impossible (laughs) fan, like (laughs) don't get me wrong, but you know, Netflix is kind of like a good example of this because they're so like their social media presence is so active they're so concerned with like on like surface level diversity and trying to appeal to as wide of a demographic as possible which is like apparently literally every last person on this godforsaken planet but like kellogg or john deere like netflix is still a corporation they're still making products for people you are not a bad person for watching a netflix movie or having a netflix subscription like all three of us do i think what we just want to get at is that people should have an awareness that media is still a product and real people are behind the scenes working on this kind of stuff every day so boycott if you want I just want to say that VPNs are very accessible to everyone and there are ways to make media accessible to you personally without having to necessarily pay corporations to do so. And we are not advocating for these alternative methods, but Google is free. I'm sure you can do your own research. I guess to end on a more lighthearted note, I, Stephanie, live in the great city of Los Angeles, California, and I've seen a lot of cars in the past few weeks with messages expressing solidarity with IATSE and the locals in town. And I think that's been really nice. I saw one with like SpongeBob drawn on the windshield (laughs) or like the side of the car. And it was like, you know, local 700 solidarity or something to that effect. And so it is nice to see SpongeBob. I mean, SpongeBob is the ultimate worker. He is. He and Squidward should unionize. It wouldn't be hard for them to unionize since there's only two of them. Actually, who would be the one to instigate that? Would it be SpongeBob or Squ- probably Squidward? Squidward, would, yeah. Yeah, Squidward's pro union. Squidward has the brains. SpongeBob would be like, sure. <laughs> SpongeBob is too loyal to the company, though. Yeah, SpongeBob would be like, oh my god, I love Mr. Krabs. We get paid so fairly. Look at my pineapple home. Yeah, SpongeBob is a corporate shell. Maybe that person should have drawn Squidward instead. <laughs> I feel like we're more Squidward-oriented podcast. Um, Actually, though, if you think about it, Squidward has, like, bourgeois aspirations. Like, (laughs) he loves doing, like, fancy people things, you know, and, like, playing his little clarinet. (laughs) 